Swing and a high fly ball, belted. First home run for Acuna as a tape measure shot in Cincinnati. There's a deep drive to center field. Get up, ball. Get out of here. And gone. Home run number one for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. 34 regular season home runs for the now 21-year-old Juan Soto. That is hit in the air to right and way out of here. Wow. Ever since last Monday, I have had this comparison in my mind that I could not wait to share with you on this podcast, and I'm going to do it now. And I promise I do not mean to be dark at all. But complete transparency, this is the third time that I've recorded this. Uh, So I really hope that it does not come off as dark as I felt that it has the first two times that I said it. So check this out. Do you remember the end to the movie The Lion King? And no, I'm not talking about the live action version that came out last year. I'm talking about the classic 1994 animated version of The Lion King, one of the greatest movies of all time, in my opinion. Do you remember the end to that movie? No, I'm not talking about the climax when Scar kind of lunges at Simba and Simba's able to flip Scar off of Pride Rock and the hyenas take care of Scar. I'm not talking about that. And I apologize if for some reason you have not seen The Lion King and that is a huge spoiler alert to you. That's my bad. I'm not, but I'm not talking about that part. I'm talking about after that. Kind of the descending action, the downhill slope of the movie Simba is standing at the bottom of Pride Rock. It is raining, and Rafiki looks at Simba and says, it is time, and it's kind of understood that Simba needs to make that walk, that ascent up Pride Rock, and when he gets to the top, it's going to be understood that he is now the king, and the music playing in the background is one of the most underrated scores of the entire movie, The King of Pride Rock composed by Hans Zimmer. Everything about that scene is perfect. And then in the movie, Simba makes that slow, kind of the slow motion ascent of Pride Rock with extremely triumphant music playing in the background. And he gets to the top and it is just kind of understood that he has become the king. For whatever reason in my twist in mind, I have compared, and I did this more than a week ago, I compared... (laughs) Simba's climb up Pride Rock to the climb, get this, of the Prospects 365 Fantasy Baseball Podcast in the first couple of rounds of the Baseball Pods Fantasy Baseball Podcast Tournament. Now, you're either laughing right now or you're kind of looking at your device right now like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Our first step up Pride Rock is, you know, we triumphantly as a 10 seed, we were able to kind of upset as an underdog, the seven seed, the SP Streamer Fantasy Baseball Podcast Tournament. So one step down, one step good. We're one for one. Our second step was our most triumphant step of our journey. We were the uh, 10 seed, still a huge underdog, even a bigger underdog in the second round. We were somehow able to beat one of the best fantasy baseball podcasts in the industry. We were able to take down the two-seed athletic fantasy baseball podcast tournament in the second round. So that, by far, if you know how this story ends, you know that that was our most triumphant step. And then we arrive in the third round. Sweet 16, we're the only double-digit seed remaining in the tournament. And I don't know if you want me to make the comparison of Pitcher list, rig, pride, rock with dynamite. And when we took our third step, we were blown to smithereens. That's a little too dark. Let's say that we attempted to take our third step and we slipped off pride rock and we tumbled into the dark. We tumbled into nothingness because that's what happened. We made it to the sweet 16. We are the only double digit seed remaining in the tournament. And we were bested by pitcher list. Now the bad news is they beat us. They had 64% of the vote. We only had 36%. They advanced to the Elite Eight, then they advanced to the Final Four, then they advanced to the championship, and then they won the whole dang tournament. So the podcast that we were beaten by in the Sweet 16, the Pitcher List uh, podcast, the guys over at Pitcher List, they won the entire tournament. So I guess that that is the good news, that we were beat by the eventual champion. 
Chris uh, at Baseball Pods, that is the Twitter handle. Uh, he ran a fantastic tournament, a lot of popularity, a lot of participation. I can't remember off the top of my head how many total votes were cast through the entire tournament. I do know that in the three rounds that we participated in, first round, second round, Sweet 16, that the Prospects 365 Fantasy Baseball Podcast received over 2,400 total votes. And of course, that's uh, in three rounds, but I am so appreciative of those of you who supported our podcast throughout this tournament. Like I said, we were the only double-digit seed that made it all the way to the Sweet 16. So, of course, we don't believe in moral victories, but that that in and of itself is an accomplishment. And if you follow us on Twitter at Prospects365, Uh, you know that I set a personal goal after we were officially beaten that I want to continue to grow this podcast to a point where, you know, this year we were a 10 seed. Next year, I want to at least cut that in half. I think on Twitter, I said, I want this podcast to be at minimum a four seed, if not even better. That's what I want to grow this podcast to in the next calendar year leading up to the second year of that tournament. So once again, I apologize for the dark, Lion King metaphor slash comparison. Uh, But I did kind of want to give you a recap of that tournament. It was a fantastic run while it lasted. Of course, we're not satisfied with our journey finishing in the Sweet 16, but it was a fun tournament nonetheless. And I look forward to us competing next year and years beyond that. If you have not been able to tell from my horrendous country accent, I am Ray Butler, your host. You are listening to episode 11. You can follow us uh, at Prospects365 on Twitter. And, of course, this is the Prospects365 Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Here's what we are going to talk about today. I want to talk about four different prospects who, if I were to publish a new prospect list right now, they would receive a bump up on that list. And you're, you might be sitting there thinking, well, there hasn't been any minor league baseball. There's not been any major league baseball how in the world can you move prospects up with no statistical samples to kind of go by? And here's the thing, your favorite prospector, hopefully your favorite prospector, uh, has contacts within these organizations who have been able to give them, give us data and information from minor league spring training. I'm going to dive into some of that specifically with one of the prospects that I'm going to talk about in this episode. So you can kind of get an idea of how it works when a prospector reaches out to a source, things like that. And that is going to be, and you're going to realize that that is all the data that we need to kind of make a move on a prospect list. We don't need statistical data. Of course, we would prefer to have eyewitness and in-person scouting to kind of back these moves, but we don't have that. No one has that right now. So along with some prospect list movers, we are also going to talk about the article uh, we are recording this episode on Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday morning, baseball America released an article basically saying that minor league baseball has conceded that there is going to be a rather drastic uh, slash of minor league affiliated teams. Right now there are 160 affiliated minor league teams. It looks like when the new agreement is in place between minor league baseball and major league baseball, that number is going to shrink closer to 120. There's a whole lot of things to take into consideration when you talk about the article itself that was published this morning and the effect that that is going to have through dynasty leagues, the way that the minor league itself is going to be structured, things like that. I'm hoping that I'm able to cover all of those things. I think, I hope that I'm going to be uh, fairly thorough in our investigation and in our discussion. So let's get to it. I'm going to talk about four prospects who, if I were to republish my 2020 prospect list today, would receive a fairly notable bump up on my list. Now, the first one is someone I've talked about extensively in published articles and on various episodes of this podcast, so I'm not going to take too long to talk about him now, and that's Peyton Burdick. I've gone on record several times saying that I was late to the call on Peyton Burdick. He was someone who was not really on my radar at the draft time last summer. 
He is not someone who was significantly on my radar when he did so well in low A after the draft last summer. Things like that. He was even, I was even slow to the draw on Peyton Burdick this offseason, kind of evaluating first-year players, kind of composing, constructing my top 200 list. VIP members, you know that that list actually extends to my top 260. He didn't even make my top 260. And I've admitted that I was wrong in doing that. I think the industry in general has kind of admitted we were late to the draw on Peyton Burdick. If I were to kind of reconstruct my prospect list now, he would be included in the top 200. I think it would be a tail end top 200 ranking, but he would be inside of my top 200. And that's fairly significant when you consider the fact that when I published or, you know, when I released my prospect list to VIP members on New Year's Day, he was not even in the top 260. So let's talk about why for a second before we move on. We know, and you've heard me say it on this podcast and things that I've published on the site, you know that he, Peyton Burdick, has extremely loud raw power and he has extremely viable speed on the base pass. The perception when he was drafted and early last summer is that the hit tool was going to be so porous that he was never going to be able to fully tap into his power or his speed. So regardless of the plus raw power, I think some can even argue that it's higher. It's more than 60 grade raw power. And regardless of his plus speed, he was not going to make enough contact to really ever unlock that fully statistically. He was never going to reach his uh, power ceiling as far as a home run output. He was never going to steal the number of bases that his, uh, his speed says that he should simply because he is not going to reach base um, enough to do that. That was the original kind of perception of Burdick when he was drafted in early last summer. And then you kind of look at his success that he had in low A Clinton post-draft. First of all, a fairly aggressive placement. I know he's a college bat, uh, but, you know, we saw a lot of college bats go to, you know, rookie ball, short season, things like that. A lot of even your more significant college players who were drafted last summer still have not yet debuted in full season ball. Well, Burdick did. And he dominated the Midwest League once he was kind of assigned to the Clinton Lumber Kings. That kind of begun the, the statistical sample that we were given kind of opened the industry's eyes to his skill set and his talent. And then since then, the reports have been pouring in from the Marlins organization of, you know, the prospect that Peyton Burdick has quickly become. There are still some questions as far as how much contact he's going to make consistently so it is you know it is very very possible that we still don't see him fully tap into the plus raw power and the plus speed but there is kind of a growing thought that he is going to have a big enough output in those categories to be viable in the fantasy world in dynasty leagues and potentially in redraft leagues as well And, you know, there is enough upside from a fantasy standpoint now, especially when you consider the fact that it appears as though he's going to make more contact than we originally thought he would, that it does warrant him becoming a top 200 prospect. I can't, I'm going to be a little bit more specific as to where I move some of the other prospects I'm about to talk about. I can't really be overly specific with Burdick, but I will say that he was not included in my top 260 that I sent to VIP members on New Year's Day, but he would now be inside of my top 200 if I were to republish and kind of recreate that prospect list. And if you are a reader of our content, I published a kind of a crystal ball projected top 100 list for the 2021 season, and I had Burdick inside of the top 100, which is kind of an assumption that I assume he was going to be placed in the Florida State League, perhaps even get a chance in the Southern League before the end of the season. He was going to have enough success in those, uh, in those leagues, in high A and in double A, specifically in the home run and speed department, that it was going to kind of bump him into the top half of a top 200 list. And that is a huge jump for a prospect who was not inside my top 260 uh, at the turn of the calendar on New Year's Day. So that's Peyton Burdick. Was not included in my top 260 uh, on New Year's Day would be included inside of my top 200 now if I were to re 
published. The next prospect I want to talk about is Tarek Skubal. And you know about Tarek Skubal. Everyone who plays in dynasty leagues is well aware of Tarek Skubal. I had him 86th on my prospect list that was published on prospects365.com. I guess now it's a couple of months ago. He would now be a top 70 guy for me. I know that that does not feel like a significant bump, but it's kind of the reasoning behind the bump that I want to mention him here. If you read my write-up on Scuba, I am still, you know, decently worried that his arsenal and his usage is going to be too fastball-heavy, too reliant on his fastball. And there's no denying the, the pitch is at least plus. I think you can make an argument that it's plus-plus, perhaps even 70-grade uh, if you are a huge proponent of the left-hander. But I was worried when I published my original list a couple of months ago that the usage was going to remain too focused and too lenient on the fastball that as Scooble progressed into the upper levels of the minors and especially when he made his major league debut in, in Detroit, that the arsenal itself was not going to be overly viable. You know how stricken I am over a guy like Bryce Wilson for the Braves. I ranked Wilson really aggressively throughout his short minor league career. Uh, you know, I always labeled him as a bulldog who is going to attack you, things like that. Uh, looking back, I should have been more aware and weary of the fact that Bryce Wilson is extremely fastball reliant within his usage. And we've seen it hasn't been an overly large sample at the big league level, but we have seen when he's been given opportunities in Atlanta for the Braves that he leans on that fastball so much that it's his margin for error is just so tiny, especially because his fastball is not high spin. It doesn't have a crazy amount of vertical or horizontal movement. It is a pitch that when you throw it enough, especially the second and third times through the order, major league hitters are simply, they're going to hit it. And we've seen in the, in the brief samples he's given us, Bryce Wilson has given us, that major league hitters are going to hit that fastball quite hard when you're throwing it 70% of the time, the second and third times through the order. That was kind of the same worry that I had with Scooble, that he was going to be a guy that, regardless of how analytically friendly his fastball is, he was going to throw that fastball anywhere between 60 and 70% of the time. And the way that baseball is played in 2020, that's not a friendly route to success. Even people with gigantically elite fastballs, your Garrett Coles, your Justin Verlanders, they don't throw their fastball 60 to 70% of the time. So in my eyes, when I published my prospect list, Scooble had a fairly narrow route to success at the big league level. We saw him throw some innings for Detroit early in spring training. I've since talked to some people who got to see him in person uh, yeah, last season, are kind of more aware of his uh, every five-day outings than I am. And my worries have been at least slightly alleviated. I do, in the back of my mind, I do still worry that, you know, the slider and the changeup and all of his secondary pitches – I slightly worry that they're still not going to be viable enough for Scooble to be a staff ace at the big league level, but I'm no longer worried as much about Scooble kind of devolving into Bryce Wilson. And by that, I mean someone who stubbornly is just kind of either unable or, or incapable of moving away from a fastball heavy usage and, of course, that leads to being damaged at the big league level. I'm not as worried now about Scooble devolving to that as I was a couple of months ago. So I would move Scooble from 86th into just inside of the top 70. It's less than a 20-spot move, but the reasoning uh, behind that move uh, is something that I wanted to talk about on this podcast episode. And for reference, where I would move him, which would be 69th, which is a really nice ranking, in my opinion, would be between someone like a Dalton Varsho, who I would have uh, directly above Scooble, and Tristan Casas, who I would have directly behind Scooble in this new hypothetical ranking. The third guy that I want to talk about in this kind of this session is Lewin Diaz. He's a guy who I've been really high on 
uh, this preseason. I ranked him inside of my top 100 in my crystal ball projected list for 2021. But even though in his write-up on my 2020 list, I discussed how much the Marlins love Diaz, even compared to some of their other high-profile prospects, I don't think that I fully recognize that in his ranking. I still think, despite the fact that the Marlins are literally in love with Lewin Diaz, despite the fact that he, of course, has extremely loud raw power, I think it's 70 grade, and in his write-up on my prospect list, I uh, kind of comped him to the light version of a Jose Abreu, and I stand by that now. I still think I underranked him. I had him 145th on my top 200 list for 2020. If I were to redo that list now, I would have him around that 100 mark. So that would be about a 45-spot movement. I put in parentheses here that that means he would now be around an Austin Hayes and Simeon Woods Richardson, that range. So about a 45-spot bump for Lewin Diaz. And to briefly talk about the profile a little bit, the lack of walks from a first baseman, it does worry me. I think that uh, we, he has really good hand-eye coordination. Uh, which is going, you know, the strikeout rate is never going to be humongous uh, that we might see from other people who swing as often as Lewin Diaz. And that's thanks to the hand-eye coordination. But I am worried about the lack of walks uh, transitioning to him becoming kind of a streaky player at the big league level because people who do not walk consistently are more reliable on batting average balls in play for their offensive production. And you've seen it. You, you watch MLB TV. You watch Major League Baseball. You know because you play in redraft leagues and in dynasty leagues and you watch your players that sometimes even when your players are squaring up the baseball and they're hitting the ball with triple-digit exit velocity, sometimes that's right at a defender and they're going to catch it. And despite the fact that, you know, your player barreled the baseball, you have nothing to show for that statistically or from a fantasy sense. That becomes even more important with prospects who do not walk a large amount. And with OVP leagues increasingly growing in their popularity, Diaz is a guy who instead is going to have more impact in your standard average leagues. He's not going to walk a lot. He's pretty aggressive. I am hopeful that the Marlins kind of shifting their philosophy within their minor league hitting philosophy, their ideology, and the big league level, I would love to see that walk rate increase before Diaz uh, debuts at the big league level. And I have already mentioned how much the Marlins love Lumen Diaz. I think if you were to look on the outside, they, they told Garrett Cooper this offseason that they're not necessarily sure they see Cooper as an everyday player moving forward. At the time, it was surprising. Looking back, I think that they're kind of laying the groundwork to give Diaz every chance possible to be their everyday first baseman as early as sometime in 2021. They signed Jesus Aguilar in free agency. I think that that is it's a very short-term deal. I'm not sure if it's one year or two years, but Diaz is going to receive that opportunity to be an everyday player probably beginning sometime next season. So I accounted for the Marlins' love of Diaz in my prospect list. I said it in his write-up. I compared Diaz to the light version of a Jose Abreu, someone who is going to hit for a lot of power, going to produce runs, going to have a high-ish batting average without a lot of walks. I think that that comparison, in my opinion, was spot on. I stand by it. But I still think that I overranked, or I'm sorry, I underranked Diaz. Instead of 145th, which I had in my actual list that I published a couple of months ago, he would now be around that 100 range of similar to where I have an Austin Hayes and a Simeon Woods Richardson. The last prospect that I want to talk about, and really the main reason that I wanted to talk about some movers in a podcast episode is Grayson Rodriguez. And the way that I'm going to discuss the data behind this move, I hope that you listening to this podcast can kind of see some of the methodology that goes behind why prospects get moved on prospect list, especially when there's no baseball. We don't have a minor league season right now. We, of course, don't have a major league season right now. And I've seen on Twitter, people, even in the industry, have discussed, what, you know, 
how is it possible for you to move prospects on your prospect list right now? We don't have baseball. Well, here's how it is possible. A couple of weeks ago, I tweeted out every single prospect in baseball who I think has the potential to be the top overall prospect, the number one ranked prospect in all of baseball. I tweeted out that list. And then, of course, if you read our content on our site, you know that I eventually went on to publish an article kind of outlining all the prospects who do have that type of potential. You can read that on prospects365.com. The day after I tweeted that list, I get a call from my main Baltimore Orioles source, a guy who is uh, involved in their analytics, also kind of has his pulse on goings on throughout their minor league system. And he says, uh, you know, our, our conversation is basically, it leans on this. I don't know if he has top overall potential, but let me tell you about what Grayson Rodriguez did during minor league spring training. And here is basically what happened. In February, January and February, Grayson Rodriguez was topping out at 100. In January and February. And not only that, he had really focused this offseason on improving his vertical movement with his fastball. So not only was he hitting triple digits, now his fastball kind of had a more of a rise, quote-unquote, to it than it did last year. And here's really kind of the cherry on top, the icing of the cake. The Orioles kind of have a comparison system and programming in their software, in their technology when they're working with minor league pitchers to where based on a vertical and horizontal movement, based on pitch velocity, things like that, they can compare the data of their minor league pitchers to other pitchers who are also in the minor leagues in their own system or at the big league level. And when you compare what Grayson Rodriguez was able to do during minor league spring training from a fastball velocity standpoint and from the vertical movement that he was getting on his pitches, guess who Grayson Rodriguez's fastball compared closest to? How about Justin Verlander? Grayson Rodriguez now is equipped, and who knows how that would carry over to the minor league season. But during minor league spring training, Grayson Rodriguez topped out at 100, and he topped out at 100 with vertical movement that is reminiscent to the same vertical movement that Justin Verlander gets with his fastball. And this is news. That is big-time news in the prospect world. And I assume that this is the first you have heard of this development and in this improvement with Grayson Rodriguez. I ranked Rodriguez 50th in my 2020 prospect list. I have adamantly kept D.L. Hall in front of Rodriguez on my prospect list. So during this conversation with this Orioles guy, I asked the question. I said, look, you know, you have kind of guided me into keeping D.L. Hall over Rodriguez in my list because this source, my contact, has way more information on these prospects, on these pitchers, than I do. I got to see Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall uh, at the Futures game last summer in Cleveland. It was the first time that I had gotten to scout either of those guys. But my source within the Orioles organization, just he knows infinitely more about these pitching prospects than I do. So I asked him, I said, knowing now uh, what I wish you would have known a couple of months ago, how would that affect where you kind of have D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez in your pecking order? And this was the very first time that he said, I would have Rodriguez over a D.L. Hall. And he said, you know, don't worry about a D.L. Hall because, you know, his secondary stuff is still better than Grayson Rodriguez's secondary stuff. And, oh, yeah, no big deal. But D.L. Hall was also hitting 96 to 98 during minor league spring training with superior secondary offerings. And yet the foundation behind Grayson Rodriguez's 
new developed fastball is so good that you now really have no other choice but to move Grayson Rodriguez in front of D.L. Hall from a prospect list standpoint. We're talking about two pitching prospects who undoubtedly have top of the rotation potential. So we're really splitting hairs and the margin is razor thin when we're talking about the way that I had Hall ranked over Rodriguez this preseason, or now the way that I would have Rodriguez ranked over Hall. The margin is really, really tiny, but getting this evaluation correct is important to me because these two pitchers are in the same organization. So quickly, I want to touch on what exactly it means to have the vertical movement of a Grayson Rodriguez in his fastball. You know, there's this old saying that some pitchers have a fastball that quote-unquote rises. And if you know anything about the analytics behind certain pitches, you know that that's not true. It is, uh, I don't, I guess impossible is the correct word, but a, a baseball does not rise from the time it leaves a pitcher's hand to the time that it gets to home plate and is received by the catcher. That doesn't happen. But what happens is when you have a pitching prospect who has really good vertical movement on their fastball, the pitch simply remains on plane longer than a typical fastball does. If you've ever stood in the box uh, at kid pitch at the little league level in high school at college, you might not notice this because a pitch happens so quickly from the pitcher's hand to home plate, but even fastballs that are thrown really quickly, even they drop some from the time they leave the pitcher's hand to the time that they get to home plate. Pitchers who have viable swing and miss fastballs their fastballs are able to remain on plane longer than a typical fastball does. Most of you are aware of this, but let's take a step back for those who don't. There are two types of fastball movement. You have your vertical movement and you have horizontal movement. Vertical movement, the, the first pitcher I think of is Garrett Cole. And pitchers who have above average vertical movement on their fastballs, that is kind of taking the place of high-velocity fastballs when it comes to thinking of explosion. We're not really thinking, if you, at least you, if you're initiated, you're not really thinking of a 100-mile-per-hour fastball as explosive as often as you are now thinking of that fastball with the above-average vertical movement on it. Horizontal movement, remember, think back to last summer when Dustin May debuted for the Dodgers. And Pitching Ninja had all those cool gifs of the Dustin May fastball that would run away from left-handers and it would run into the hands of right-handers. Dustin May's fastball has, or I, I think they classified as a sinker, it has above average horizontal movement. Now, generally speaking, vertical movement, an above average amount of vertical movement, it induces more swings and misses. An above average amount of horizontal movement is more along the lines of inducing soft contact and ground ball contact. So my Orioles contact said that with the way that Rodriguez has developed his fastball during the offseason, his fastball now ends up approximately 10 inches higher than an average fastball. Now think about that. Imagine standing in the box and you've seen so many pitches throughout your years of playing baseball that even though you don't really perceive it in your mind that a fastball is dropping, you know practically where you need to swing at a fastball in order to make sufficient contact to get on base. Now imagine a fastball that ends up 10 inches higher than a typical fastball. So you now need to swing 10 inches higher at a Grayson Rodriguez fastball than you typically do at an average pitcher's fastball. And I know that that's not overly scientific, but that should give you an idea of just how good Grayson Rodriguez's fastball has become. No, it's, it's unlikely that we're going to get a statistical sample that backs that up this season. You know, uh, the minor league season has become increasingly unlikely, it seems, with each passing day. It seems like most minor league players are going to kind of be relegated to complexes if 
we get baseball at all this season. So it's unlikely that Rodriguez is able to have statistical success in the Carolina League that would uh, necessitate a move for him on a prospect list. But it's this information from contacts and from sources that either loosely work with organizations or are just simply well-connected with organizations. It is that information that leads to, to increases and improvements in rankings like the one I'm currently discussing about Grayson Rodriguez. So to kind of sum up, I had Rodriguez 50th, and now I would move him about 10 spots higher to 40th. And the reason I'm not moving him any higher is it's obvious that there is a chance that he has developed a 60 or 70 grade fastball. And it's also important to note that his first full professional season was last year, 2019. Most of the time in your first professional season, especially as a pitcher, when the season is kind of coming to a close, quite often we see a dip in fastball velocity. It's not unordinary. If I would have, you know, I did see that report on several pitchers that I evaluated this offseason. Velocity kind of tapered off a little bit in their last few starts of the season. That is completely normal. I, most of the time, I kind of discard that information just because it's so normal. Well, that was not the case with Grayson Rodriguez. Grayson Rodriguez enjoyed and benefited from an increased fastball velocity as the season progressed. So now you have the kind of the increase in fastball velocity that we witnessed at the end of last season. And now you pair that with a fastball that topped out in triple digits with elite vertical movement during the minor league spring training. And yes, I'm only moving him from 50th to 40th. It's only about a 10-spot increase. That would put him between an Evan White and a Sixto Sanchez. I believe that would be uh, immediately behind Evan White, immediately in front of a Sixto Sanchez. I think that for him to move any higher, we are going to need, I'm going to need additional reports on just how good the fastball has become, or even more importantly, an eyewitness uh, our Michael Schneider, who writes for Prospects 365, he's our Carolina League analyst. Of course, it would be awesome to get an eyewitness report from him at some point this summer. Some sort of supporting anecdotal evidence for us to move him any higher than we have. But I do feel as though you are now equipped with kind of information about a Grayson Rodriguez that is not published anywhere. It's published right here as I'm saying it. So that is why it's important to make sure you prioritize getting your knowledge and getting your information from people who are well-sourced, have contacts within organizations, and things like that. That's important. If you want to stay on top of your dynasty league, especially competitive high-dollar dynasty leagues, information like this and getting that information from reliable sources is of the utmost Important. So during this session, we have talked about Peyton Burdick, the fact that he would now be a top 200 prospect for me. We have talked about Tarek Skubal, about the fact that I'm not as worried now as I was a couple of months ago that uh, he is going to be extremely fastball reliant within his usage. I think I'm hoping we see an increase in slider and changeup usage this season, regardless of the type of season we receive. We talked about Lewin Diaz, the fact that I underranked him in my prospect list. He would now be around that 100 mark for me. And, of course, we talked about the information I received on Grayson Rodriguez. I ranked him 50th this preseason. He would now be a top 40 pitching prospect for me. If that information on Rodriguez is valid and he proves that statistically whenever minor league baseball returns, with that foundation, he, without a doubt, has potential to someday be the top pitching prospect in baseball. That is how good having such a fantastic fastball as a foundation. That's what that can mean for a profile moving forward. So that is some, certainly something to keep an eye on. Now, the last thing that I really want to talk about in great deal today is uh, the article that Baseball America released here within the past few hours about minor league baseball. And there's a whole lot to uncover, of course. We talked about it at the top. The, the premise of the article is basically that 
minor league baseball has conceded that they are going to have to slash affiliated organizations. Right now there are 160 affiliated minor league teams. It appears as though that in this new agreement that minor league and major league baseball hope to strike with each other, it appears as now that number is going to be slashed from 160 to about 120. So here's the deal. So many of the minor league teams across the country are privately owned. And I think you have to understand that before you can understand any part of this dumpster fire. Major League Baseball does not own a majority of minor league teams in the United States. So throughout this pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, that uh, you know, has delayed the start of the 2020 season, Think of minor league teams or most minor league teams as small businesses, small businesses who have about a six month window every year to make the profits that keep them viable financially. Well, now there is no minor league season or at least not yet. And it's looking like, as I said, as each day passes by a minor league season seems to be increasingly unlikely. So the coronavirus, the COVID-19 pandemic has really backed a lot of minor league teams into a financial corner to the point where some are likely going to have to declare bankruptcy at some point to the point that even if they are able to sustain and keep their head above water for the entirety of the 2020 calendar year, they are still going to have significant problems financially in 2021. And what that has done is any leverage that minor league baseball had in negotiations with major league baseball, as far as coming to a new agreement, as far as affiliated minor league teams and things like that, any leverage that minor league baseball had is basically been thrown out the window because all of these small businesses that are minor league that, you know, privately owned minor league baseball teams, they've now been backed into a a financial corner. They are all kind of working uh, at a huge deficit compared to seasons and years in the past. So if you read the article from Baseball America, you know that Major League Baseball is hoping that each organization will end up with four full season affiliates and one rookie level complex team uh, kind of at a spring training site. So in my eyes, and I I will tell you when I have inside information on this, but most of what I'm about to talk about is kind of just a hunch. My hunch with this means that there is going to be a low A, a high A, a double A, and a triple A. That is basically going to be the extent of minor league affiliated teams. And, of course, you're also going to have a complex team that remains at an organization spring training complex, and they kind of have your inner squads, your scrimmages, uh, and they continue working with kind of your younger prospects who a team might not want to assign to a cold weather state in a March or April, things like that that we're used to talking about. Now, what that means, negatively speaking, that means that your short season teams are going to be no more it means that your rookie level teams are going to be no more. And well, let me, let me word that better. Some of the teams may continue to exist at some level, but your leagues themselves will likely be dissolved. That means that the pioneer league is certainly on the chopping block. The Northwest league, the New York Penn league, the Appalachian league, the Gulf coast league, in all likelihood, those leagues are not going to exist in 2021 beginning next year even if some of the teams still do, and we'll talk about how they might exist, a lot of those leagues or all of the leagues that I mentioned will probably be no more. Of course, you know, if you read the original proposal from Major League Baseball, I believe it was published on Baseball America last November. There were 42 teams who were kind of placed on the chopping block that were kind of, Uh, laid out that would be kind of dissolved and that was going to be major league baseball's way of cutting affiliated teams from 160 to 120 they want to increase pay for minor leaguers 
But of course, in big business, they're going to do that by cutting the number of teams and increasing the amount of pay for players in the lessened amount of teams. We know from today's article that two independent league teams, the St. Paul Saints and the Sugarland Skeeters, they are going to be added to affiliated baseball. So we are going to likely lose 42 affiliated teams and we are going to gain two independent league teams, they will become affiliated. And before I go any further, not only was this published on Baseball America, I do believe J.J. Cooper for Baseball America has kind of been the driving force that has published all of this information that has been incredibly popular uh, and incredibly sobering for those of us who have read it, um, and especially sobering for the teams who have kind of been put on the chopping Block. So some other things that you need to know. I have confirmed that the Dominican Summer League is going to remain intact. So this kind of this consolidation of minor league affiliates, it is not going to affect the DSL. My understanding of that is that the DSL is already owned by Major League Baseball. They are not in the same umbrella, this MLB, MILB umbrella, as your stateside affiliates are. So because they are already owned and run by Major League Baseball, they are not on the chopping block, and the DSL will remain intact next season and beyond. That is my understanding based on conversations that I have had in the past couple of hours. Another important thing to keep in mind, and this is based on what I have heard here recently within the past little while, reaching out to some of my contacts who know the situation better than I do. If you remember the articles that were published before Christmas, it listed specifically the 42 teams who were kind of on the uh, metaphorical chopping block as far as teams that Major League Baseball wanted to kind of dissolve and consolidate to get from 160 minor league teams to 120. I have been told that some teams from the original proposal are likely to survive uh, the chopping block once the moves are officially made. On the flip side of that card, it appears as though that some teams who were not in the original proposal are now at risk of being slashed. And this goes back to at the time of the proposal, all the articles came out on Major League Baseball, or I'm sorry, on Baseball America, things like that. The original word that I heard was that Originally, Major League Baseball knowingly overshot the total number of teams that they wanted to consolidate and dissolve. So they originally proposed 42 teams that were going to be eliminated, but they knew deep down that likely they were going to have to settle for somewhere around that 20 number and perhaps consolidate and dissolve 20 teams and decrease the number from 160 maybe to 140. What I talked about a couple of minutes ago with Minor league teams, you know, the, we, we should think of these minor league teams as small businesses. And the fact that so many of these minor league teams have now been backed into financial corners based on the fact that they're running a small business that is not operating currently. Now, it's like I said, the, any leverage that minor league baseball had in these discussions, in these negotiations, has ceased to exist. So now it appears as though minor league baseball is willing to kind of concede, you know, even if we were hopeful that only some of these teams were going to be dissolved and consolidated, now it appears as though the full 42 or, you know, 40 total teams will be removed from affiliated baseball from 160 to 120. So allow me to repeat that last point one more time. I'm sure most of you listening to this have read the article where there were 42 individual specific teams who were mentioned as far as Major League Baseball's original, original proposal to be dissolved. I've been told, and the, the thought is, and this is certainly not mine as much as it is a common thought is, a couple of the teams that were in the original proposal will survive, but a couple of teams who were not in the original proposal will likely be dissolved. I've not been given any specifics on teams that were originally listed who perhaps will survive. I've also not been given any specifics on teams who were originally not listed who will now be on the chopping block. I'm hopeful that we are given more information on that sooner 
rather than later. I'm just kind of basing this on a hunch and on the information that I have been given from people who know more about this situation than I do. If you continue reading in the article, you know that Major League Baseball is hopeful that a lot of the small towns who will be losing affiliated baseball, they're hopeful that these towns will keep baseball in some way, shape, form, or fashion. You read in the article that in the original plan, there was kind of a introduction to the hypothetical dream league. You know that the Major League Baseball is going to decrease its draft likely to about 10 rounds, and that's going to begin this summer. You know, you may believe them, you may believe Major League Baseball when they say that there's always the option of expanding back to 40 rounds in the future. I personally, I really don't believe that. I think that the draft is going to remain at about 10 rounds moving forward. I think that that is going to become the new normal. So there are going to be a lot, hundreds of players who on, in a normal year would be drafted are no longer being drafted in this new 10-round system that will likely be in place moving forward. Well, those players are going to be placed in somewhat of, I think in the article it was called the Dream League. They're going to be placed in these towns that will have lost an affiliated minor league baseball team. And these players are going to be playing in this quote-unquote Dream League hoping to prove themselves to minor league organizations to hopefully sign a future contract and become a part of major league baseball affiliation with a low a high double a AA, or triple a minor league affiliate. That would be the goal of playing in the dream league would be for college players who do not get drafted. They become, they join a team in the dream league and hope to perform well enough to be signed in the future by a major league team. That is kind of, in my mind, how the Dream League would work. Another idea for the cities who are, in the very near future, going to lose a minor league team is to kind of have a something similar to the Cape Cod League. If you don't know what the Cape Cod League is, it's in the Northeast. A lot of your premier college talent plays in the Cape Cod League during the summer. After the college season is over, these prospects go to the Cape, they get to use wood bats. They uh, see some of the best pitching in college baseball. It's a really good league to get your feet wet with future MLB draft prospects. Nick Gonzalez was the MVP of the Cape Cod League last summer, if memory serves me correct. And now he's going to be a top five draft prospect this summer. So there is premier talent in a league like the Cape Cod League. And I would hope that the desire of Major League Baseball would be to form kind of more of these leagues. Let's say the, my mind immediately goes to the Jackson Generals. They have been on the chopping block since day one. They're in the Southern League as a team that is perhaps going to lose their affiliation. Right now they are the AA affiliate of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, I do not know what, if they're going to eventually be chopped or not. I'm just not sure. But I would hope that – you know, in this Cape Cod League-esque thought that Major League Baseball has had, that perhaps Jackson can be a site for a team in this wood bat college league, similar to the Cape Cod League. I'm not sure. I'm just kind of shooting from the hip. Uh, but in that article, you can read where Major League Baseball has kind of proposed a dream league for non-drafted college players. It would be unaffiliated ball, but the hope would be you have young players who want to prove themselves uh, statistically and to eyewitnesses in hopes of getting signed by a major league organization. And then other cities who lose their affiliation with a minor league team will kind of add a summer league for college players. They'll use wood bats. It'll be similar to the Cape Cod League, things like that. As you can see, there is so much that is kind of left to be determined. We're not sure uh, exactly what teams are going to be dissolved, which will lead to the consolidation of minor league baseball. Uh, we are not sure if cities and towns lose affiliation. We're not sure uh, what is going to happen to those ballparks, to those small communities, to those small businesses that rely on attendance. They rely on uh, ticket sales, concession sales, concession sales, and things like that to remain viable. 
I'm hopeful that all 42 teams who lose MLB affiliation will gain either a Dream League team or a summer wood bat team that would kind of play host for college players looking for additional reps. One thing I think that is worth mentioning is, you know, whether you're simply a minor league baseball fan or you go to minor league games to watch players and prospects who might be in your dynasty league, things like that, even for the minor league teams who are safe and are going to remain affiliated to a major league team moving forward, there are no assurances that things are going to remain business as usual. What I mean by that is, uh, let's take the Birmingham Barons. I have not seen the Birmingham Barons. They're a Southern League team. I have not seen them mentioned in any of the chopping block articles that I've read as far as minor league teams who may be dissolved. But just because the Birmingham Barons are seemingly safe moving forward, that does not mean, number one, that they are going to remain affiliated to the Chicago White Sox long-term. And it also does not mean that they are going to remain part of AA in general or of the Southern League. I think that Major League Baseball is trying to be, I I think they would use the word transformative. Uh, They want to drastically reshape the minor league landscape. So if you live close to a minor league affiliate who appears to be safe, don't just assume that they're going to remain in the same classification, in the same league, or anything like that moving forward. I do think even for a lot of teams that are safe from being dissolved in the near future, I do think we are going to see some big, big changes uh, with a lot of the way that uh, minor league teams are classified. I I think that major league baseball wants to have leagues closer together geographically, and that is going to have ramifications even for teams that remain safe as minor league baseball kind of consolidates. But when there is more information provided through teleconferences and breaking news decisions like that, I will make sure that I tweet my thoughts on it. I'm sure that this will not be the last time that we talk about this news on this podcast. So we compared somehow we very darkly compared the baseball pods, fantasy baseball podcast tournament, to the Lion King of all things. We talked about four different prospects that I would move up on my prospect list if I were to reconstruct that list right now. And we talked about the many things worth considering uh, in that minor league, major league, ongoing negotiations. They have to come to an agreement. It certainly appears as though affiliated MILB teams will be cut from 160 to about 120. And like I said, I'm hopeful that we have more news on this front in the very, very near future. We are kind of on prospects365.com. We are beginning to transition towards the MLB draft. We literally, we have very little else to talk about. There's no major league baseball. There's no minor league baseball. So we are using this time to really shore up our opinions, our evaluations, on draft prospects that are going to be drafted by MLB teams in the ten, likely 10-round draft this summer. Our Ian Smith released a feature on Nick Gonzalez in the past couple of days. That is certainly worth reading on the site. I am currently working on a first-year player draft list that will include uh, college players, high school players, and J2 signees. Uh, and Ian is also working on his first edition mock draft for this summer's MLB draft. So a lot more MLB draft material coming your way. I, of course, plan on having Ian come on the podcast here in the near future. We'll talk about some of the more popular first-year player draft prospects for the 2021 season and things like that. So a lot more coming your way. Perhaps even some things that I won't mention now that I will mention in the very near future. I am Ray Butler, your host. You can follow us on Twitter at prospects 365 you can continue to read the material that we are publishing at prospects 365.com we will talk to you very very soon